Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Dan Embender here. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise, where we have had several phenomenal ports of call along the way. We've learned all about the normal pregnancy physiology, heart failure, coronary artery disease, arrhythmia, pulmonary hypertension, aortic disorders, hypertensive disorders, multidisciplinary critical care, ACHD in pregnancy, valvular heart disease, and powerful patient perspectives from women heart champions. Today, we are so excited to talk about pregnancy and anticoagulation with the legendary Dr. Katie Burlacher. We cardio nerds are just so grateful to Dr. Burlacher for all of her mentorship. And indeed, she was recently awarded the Master Cardio Nerd Award for her support of the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. Here's a clip from the Cardio Nerds Award Ceremony. Hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us for our third award ceremony. We begin with the Master Cardio Nerd Award offered to an individual who supports the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. Join us as we humbly present this to Dr. Katie Burlacher, Program Director of the Cardiology Fellowship Program at UPMC. She holds a ton of accolades, titles, and accomplishments, but my favorite is that she is a major nerd and has been a constant pillar of support and mentorship for us cardio nerds from imparting her cardio obstetrics wisdom on the podcast to helping us promote diversity and inclusion as a mentor to the Narratives and Cardiology series. And hey, as Meded boss, she even debated us on trendy versus traditional education. We all know who won that one. Wink, wink. That's right. Congratulations again, Dr. Burlacher. Remember, everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description, and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app. And with that, let's dive right into this very important topic. Natalie? Take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Natalie Stokes, one of the FIT co-chairs for the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics series. We're really excited to dive into one of the most high-yield topics today, anticoagulation in pregnancy. Now, I think even if after listening to this whole series, you still choose not to specialize in cardio obstetrics, I think this will come up in your practice. So there's a lot of important take-home points here for all of us. Walking us through this today will be our fellow lead, Dr. Akanksha Agarwal. She is a general cardiology fellow at Emory, and she's interested in women's health and cardiology, as well as advanced heart failure and transplant. Welcome, Akanksha. Thank you, Natalie. We're honored to have Dr. Katie Burlacher as our expert faculty for this session. Dr. Burlacher is an assistant professor of medicine, program director of cardiology fellowship program, and the director of the women's heart program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Her primary research Research is in the field of medical education, specifically innovative curriculum development and faculty development. She's also involved in research surrounding cardiac disease in women and pregnancy in cardiology. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Burlacher, Natalie, and Amit and share this Cardio Notes talk. Welcome, Dr. Burlacher. Thanks so much, Akanksha. I am so excited to be here. Hi, Natalie and my cardio nerd experts. Thanks so much for coming. 
Dr. Berlacher is my program director, and she is also my clinic preceptor. So I am lucky enough to be with her in clinic at McGee Women's Hospital, where we see a ton of cardio-obstetric patients. So I'm really excited because I've been privileged to learn from her, but today she'll get to share that with all of you. To start us off, Dr. Berlacher, can you tell us how you became interested in cardio-obstetrics? Sure. It was a winding path, to be honest. You know, I majored in women's studies in college when I was at Duke for undergrad, and I always knew I wanted to go into medicine eventually. So I went to medical school and, and chose internal medicine, not sure whether or not I'd go to cardiology. And I chose to do a women's health track at the time in internal medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And from there, I went into cardiology, and I wanted to continue to blend those worlds of women's studies, women's health and cardiology. So I really decided that my focus and my practice would be women's cardiology specifically. And one of the biggest areas in women's cardiology that we think of is cardioobstetrics and high-risk cardiac disease within obstetrics. And that's really preconception counseling, antepartum or during pregnancy, and then postpartum, as well as other things that we think about, although we're not going to talk about today, are kind of the the cardio-obstetric issues that become risk factors later on in life so that we can keep women healthy in their later ages of their life. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Berlacher. And, you know, I just have to say, Dan wishes he was here. He just messaged us. Miss you guys. So sorry I couldn't make it. He's in the cath lab saving lives. But from all of us here at Cardiners, we wanted to thank you for all of the support you've provided for us. We, we met originally with a case report series from the episode we did with Natalie and Agnes and Kaylee for the, the UPMC episode. When we finally met face to face virtually, you know, it was because you emailed us saying, hey, I love what you guys are doing. And I just wanted to make myself available in case you needed anything. And it really, you know, it was just so touching for us. And I can't thank you enough for all of that. Well, you're more than welcome. You guys do awesome work here. And I think your hashtag of the democratization of education is something that we should all contribute to as the world of medicine is a lifelong learning career. So uh, I am glad that you are bringing new things in a new way to everybody and for free, which is fantastic. Well, I'll raise a toast to that. So to get us started for today's discussion, let's start off with putting the whole discussion into context. I've definitely been consulted about anticoagulation in pregnancy, but it still makes me super nervous and I'm hoping after today's discussion it won't. But to get us all on the same page before we dive in, can you give us a bird's eye view of why this is such a high stakes situation? What's the big deal? And really, what's the cost of making the wrong decision? Right. And this is something for cardioobstetrics in general and not just anticoagulation within pregnancy. But, you know, when you're dealing with a pregnant mom or a, a woman considering pregnancy, you have to think about two things, right? You have to think about the risk to the mother, but you also have to think about the risk to the fetus. And the physiology of pregnancy is so different than what we know in our normal state as, as a non-pregnant woman. And so balancing those risks are often in tension with each other. And we have to figure out the best way that is both good for the mom and good for the fetus. That's true, Dr. Berdocker. We come across indications for anticoagulation in pregnancy not infrequently, and the decisions we make have real consequences. No pressure to anyone. I'd love to get your input on a patient that I recently took care of. A 32-year-old lady with history of rheumatic heart disease and mechanical mitral valve who takes warfarin 7.5 milligrams daily presented to my cardiology follow-up clinic. She was very interested in getting pregnant. So what would you advise her? Gosh, this is a hard one. And as we were just talking about with Ahmed, you know, what we have to balance is really the bleeding and the clotting risk to the mom, right? Because she's got a mechanical mitral valve. So that is something that we know risk of thrombus on the valve or emboli to her. 
as well as bleeding complications when she's taking anticoagulations. But now we also have to balance that with the risk of the fetus, which if you guys remember, warfarin has known teratogenicity, especially in the first trimester, really that six to 12 week period. So you think about the bleeding risk of the fetus at that point in time. And so you really consider all of those factors when you counsel somebody with regards to planning a pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. So this is always a tough situation and we have a lot of different factors to take into account. And ultimately, patient education and shared decision making are absolutely key. Dr. Burlacher, how would you counsel this patient about her decision making to pursue pregnancy? I know from working with you that preconception counseling for cardiac patients, both high risk and otherwise, is something that you are particularly good at. So any tips of the trade that you care to share before we dive into this patient's case? Sure. And, you know, one of the things I think about this is that this shouldn't be a first time discussion when they're thinking about becoming pregnant. Hopefully you've cared for this woman as she has got her valve replaced or at least when she established care from you, if she moved from another area and then talking about pregnancy or at least the consideration of pregnancy in a woman who is of childbearing age is something that you should be really discussing regularly with them. Even if they're not considering it, you should be talking about contraception if they are not actively considering being pregnant. So hopefully this is just a continuation of that that discussion. But if it's not, one of the things that I really like to focus on is what variety of risks we have with regards to risk to mom and risk to the fetus. So Specifically for her with warfarin, she needs to know that that medicine crosses the placenta, that it's been known to cause teratogenic effects, both basically in the cartilage and bone, and that with warfarin, unlike some of the other anticoagulants that we'll talk about, it does cause fetal anticoagulation. So the fetus and the mom both have anticoagulated blood. And so those things are something they should know about the use of warfarin we'll talk about what the options are moving forward. She also needs to be reminded about the risks of not being anticoagulated or not using warfarin, especially as she goes into pregnancy, which as we all know is a hypercoagulable state. And so it becomes something that we really have to have full understanding and make sure that this is, like you said, Natalie, a shared decision where some women are more worried about one thing than the other. And so we can make recommendations that align with their values and their choices as they think about getting pregnant. We also need to think about it because remember that teratogenicity is early on in pregnancy. And so we really need to catch it when somebody becomes pregnant within the first four to five weeks of that so that we can make the appropriate changes if need be with regards to the anticoagulation. This is such a helpful discussion because... You know, on the one hand, you think uh, a pregnant patient with heart disease, you really think about the need for a specialized integrated cardio B heart team. But at this point in the course with preconception counseling, a lot of this really will fall on the responsibility of the, the general cardiologist taking care of this patient, following this patient, her gynecologist, her primary care doctor. And so this is so helpful to have these considerations in mind for all of us, really. And thinking about uh, the risk going forward, you know, Dr. Berlacher, we discussed a bit about cardio-OB risk stratification tools earlier with Dr. Garima Sharma, but where does she fit on that spectrum? How do you apply those tools in this circumstance? Yeah, such a good question. And, And thankfully, we have these tools, right, which give us a little bit better of an idea of what the actual risk is. And Garima is great. And I, I know she talked about the the modified WHO classification as well as the Zahara and the CARPRIG2. And we won't get into the details of those today. But for everybody to know, when you have a mechanical valve in every single one of those classification approaches, the mechanical heart valve automatically gets you to a high risk state. 
So for the modified WHO, you're a class three. For the Sahara, you get 4.25 points for mechanical valve, which equates to a 70% risk of complication during pregnancy. And for CARPREG2, you get three points. So all of those automatically get you at that high risk state, which is true. Anybody who has a mechanical valve and is becoming pregnant, needing to use anticoagulation during pregnancy is in a higher risk category with regards to developing cardiac complications during pregnancy or shortly thereafter. Yeah, so for our patient, on the one hand, she needs anticoagulation given a mechanical mitral valve, which is at particularly high risk of thrombosis just due to the lower flows, as we know. But on the other hand, we have to consider the fetal risk. So, Dr. Berlecker, you mentioned that you have an approach to anticoagulation and she may have some options. So how do you approach that over the course of her pregnancy? Sure. And I think it's important. I didn't say this, but I do want to say that, you know, having a mechanical mitral valve or aortic valve or any, you know, valve in general, if it's a tricuspid even, is not an absolute contraindication to pregnancy. And that's just something that we do also want to know. I think our fear as physicians sometimes gets the better of us where you say, well, gosh, I don't want to have to deal with this or I'm afraid of dealing with this. But it is not an absolute contraindication, unlike some other disorders that are in the WHO and Zahara, where we really really try to recommend that that patients really avoid pregnancy at all costs. But this is not one of them. It just is it's complicated. And I think having an approach to it, like you were asking about, Natalie, is really important. For this patient specifically, it's going to be kind of first, second, third trimester, as well as our, our peripartum and our postpartum period. And I like to think about all of those a little bit separately because the risks and the options in each of those periods of time is slightly different, right? As you noted, the mechanical mitral valve puts our patient at risk for not only thrombosis, but embolism. And then certain of the medicine, specifically warfarin, increases the risk for fetal complications. And so we need to have that discussion beforehand. Typically, what I recommend for patients with mechanical mitral valve specifically is they need anticoagulation no matter what. This is not a patient who we can have prophylaxis or hope that we can get by with just aspirin, right? We need anticoagulation. And I'll say that going forward too, that aspirin is presumed in these patients, you know, in in all of our just general guidelines for non-pregnant patients, they should be fully anticoagulated as well as the baby aspirin on board. And that continues during pregnancy. Aspirin is a completely safe drug during pregnancy. And so the baby aspirin can be continued throughout, even at the peripartum period. We'll talk about a little bit more as we talk about our anesthesiologists at that time of delivery. But for the first trimester for her is really the tough part because, you know, the warfarin dose for her becomes a little bit dicey. She's right on that borderline dose where she's higher than five milligrams, where we may say her risk of fetal complication or side effect is greater than we would like to take on. And thus we may recommend or at least talk to her about having low molecular weight heparin on board for the first trimester until we get past that high-risk teratogenic period into the second and third trimester where we could go back to the warfarin use. So that's a big overview and we can talk about the, the details more kind of as we get into it. Wow, that seems to be a very tough decision. Both warfarin and low molecular weight heparin have their own positives and negatives for use. Warfarin may be more effective for anticoagulation for the mechanical valve but low molecular weight heparin may be safer for the baby. So that's a tough call. Dr. Balakar, in your experience, how do you advise your patients to make these decisions? How do you help them? What factors do they consider? You know, it's hard, right? And you guys are getting at some of the hardest questions that I deal with clinically for really any of my patients. 
But typically what I try to do is collect more information, right? I always say to my medical students, when you don't know, go back to your history and physical or go back to your patient. And so some of the things that I like to know of are other risk factors that would put them at even higher risk for either thrombus or emboli. And those are things like atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, prior thromboembolism, multiple mechanical valves, and obviously the place of the valve, which is we all know the mechanical valve placement or location in the mitral position is higher risk than the aortic position. So if those risk factors are present, sometimes I lean more toward the warfarin, which has a better profile with regards to anticoagulation and decreasing thrombotic and embolic events. That said, if they don't have any of those risk factors and feel comfortable knowing the risk, the potential risk with Coumadin and low molecular weight heparin, and they decide to move ahead with Coumadin for the first trimester, we do feel that it's safe. But again, it's eyes wide open for everybody. So making sure that the maternal fetal medicine doctors that are caring for the patient with you and the patient are all on board as you make that decision. Thank you, Dr. Berlacher. The devil is certainly in the details here, and there's so many nuances to consider. So just so I understand this, from the perspective of the mother with a mechanical heart valve, ideally she would continue warfarin throughout her course, right? Because that's the anticoagulation with the most data. But during the first trimester specifically, the time of organogenesis, because of the tritogenicity that warfarin carries, we may consider switching to an alternative like low molecular weight heparin for the first trimester. And that teratogenicity is dose-responsive. So the first decision point is you were putting out the dose uh, threshold essentially 5 milligrams daily. If it's a higher than 5 milligrams daily, we may lean towards switching to a low molecular weight heparin for the first trimester. And if it's lower than 5 milligrams daily, then we may consider continuing the warfarin through the first trimester. And then you said you identify other variables that may help you lean one way or the other, like you know the position of the valve and the overall risk for thrombogenicity, et cetera. Is that about fear? Yeah, that's completely correct. I mean, the, it, the balance is really, you said it, the devil is in the details. And, and so typically, I pretty strictly stick to the five milligrams. For some patients, though, the seven and a half, it's slightly increased. And so with that slight increase, you nailed it. The risk of any of those side effects increases with the dose of the warfarin. And so she is a little bit above, but it's it's not at the, you know, if somebody had a 12 to 15 milligrams a day dose, you know, you really kind of have to weigh that. And if the patient is more concerned about maybe a thrombus and who knows, maybe this person, we didn't talk about this, Akaksha, as to whether or not she had any of those other risk factors that I mentioned. But if she had a prior thrombus on her mitral valve, I might be inclined to say, you know, while it's a slightly increased risk for your fetus, we're really worried about the thrombus on your valve. And maybe we do take the risk of 7.5 milligrams and move forward with that. You know, again, these are guidelines and it does have data behind them. But for some individual patients, if they understand and are willing to take the risk, I think it's, it's an appropriate conversation to have and to lean into as you're thinking about this moving forward. Great. Thank you. So, you know, whatever decision comes out of that shared conversation, Many of us still get nervous when it comes to prescribing, well, really anything during pregnancy or lactation, let alone anticoagulation. So what are the nuances of prescribing and monitoring warfarin or low molecular weight heparin in pregnancy? Are there any differences with regards to INR monitoring for warfarin or dosing for low molecular weight heparin? Yeah, good question. The INR monitoring stays about the same, right? But, you know, sometimes because the pregnant state can change, INR levels, you do want to make sure that you're checking it pretty frequently to make sure that that appropriate INR level is maintained. But the goal INR does not change for your mechanical mitral valve. 
for the low molecular weight heparin, you know, for any of our other patients who are not pregnant, we kind of just dose it for the one mg per kg, right? For at least a therapeutic dosing every 12 hours. For our pregnant patients with low molecular weight heparin, we really want to make sure that we're exactly perfect on that anticoagulation. And so we measure anti-10A activity, and we do that about four to six hours after the dose. And for mitral valves, you aim for a 1 to 1.2 unit. And then for aortic valves, again, a little bit lower, just like your INR is lower for aortic valves, and you aim for 0.8 to 1 in that standpoint. So it's typically, we don't think about low molecular weight heparin needing to be monitored very closely, but for our pregnant patients, we really do need to make sure that that dose is exactly where we want it with a small window. You note that that window is like 0.2 units per milliliter, and, and that's an important window to try to achieve so that you don't under anticoagulate or over anticoagulate, as you can imagine both have complications associated with that. So something I really can't get over as we go through this discussion is one of the things you said initially, Dr. Burlacher, about the importance of having an ongoing conversation with patients in preconception counseling, because we're talking more and more about how important this first trimester is. And a lot of patients don't even know that they're pregnant until well into their first trimester if they're not mindful about these things. So for me, that's really kind of hitting home already. Hypothetically, though, what about patients who are on anticoagulation for another reason, like VTE or AFib, and who are on a NOAC prior to conception? Say they want to avoid the teratogenic effects of warfarin and to avoid the sub-Q injections of low molecular weight heparin. Can they just continue their NOAC through pregnancy? Nope. <laughs> That's a quick answer for you, Natalie. No, they may not. The, none of the DOACs or NOACs have been approved for pregnancy, and so they are not allowed to be continued. There's, there's high risk for that, and they have not been tested for that. So I wish, too, at some point that we have an easier way to anticoagulate pregnant patients. DOACs are not our answer, and so we really do need to talk about warfarin and, and sub-Q injections, really, at low, low molecular weight heparin. You will read, and Natalie, this is an appropriate time to bring this up, that sometimes some patients, if they don't want the or don't have access to low molecular weight heparin, there is unfractionated heparin use that is at times recommended. This is really, at least in my opinion, even though it makes it, in, it into the guidelines, really the last case scenario that, that you should go to and driven by lack of resources and other issues that would present itself. So while you will read about unfractionated heparin in some of the guidelines and recommendations, very few of us use it um, because the monitoring and the feasibility of it is just so difficult. But yeah, DOACs are, are never allowed uh, during pregnancy. And just to clarify, is breastfeeding okay or no? So good question. The, the breastfeeding is always okay, right? We encourage breastfeeding of all of our moms if possible, although we recognize that the pressure to do that is hard sometimes and not all moms are able to. You know, for, for the DOACs, we still avoid DOAC use during lactation and breastfeeding. You can use both warfarin and low molecular weight heparin during with breastfeeding, though. So those are both relatively safe. While we're talking about hypotheticals and getting back to our patient, she had uh, a mechanical mitral valve. But Dr. Berlaka, would your recommendation change at all if this was a mechanical aortic valve to begin with? Good question, Akanksha. They it, it does, right? Because the mechanical mitral valve has a higher associated thrombotic risk with it. And so not necessarily quite as high. She could still do low molecular weight heparin during that first trimester. And remember, those doses of and, and the ranges for which you will go to are slightly lower for the aortic valve, just like the INR is. So, so yes, it would be slightly different, although in general, she still needs anticoagulation and she still needs that aspirin with her. So it wouldn't be 
a, a huge shift necessarily. Got it. All this talk about pregnancy and blood thinning and bleeding is take me back to thinking about my mom's story when she gave birth to me. At the time, she had placenta accreta, where the placenta is grown too far into the uterus with previa, such that the placenta covers the uterine outflow of the cervix. And when she went into labor, as can happen with placenta accreta with previa, she had massive, massive hemorrhage, right? It was so bad, apparently, to the point that she coded. And after, you know, some whatever amount of resuscitation effort, the OB was about to call it when thankfully her good friend and the chief of surgery essentially barged in and did the right thing, did an emergency hysterectomy and got control of the bleeding. And, you know, we take so many things for granted at that time, more than 30 years ago in the small town in India, they didn't have a blood bank, right? So simultaneously, while they're trying to save my mom's life, my, my uncle was riding around town in his scooter uh, recruiting people to come and donate blood. So that way, you know, she could get, you know, our equivalent of a massive transfusion protocol. Uh, you know, and her pregnancy was complicated with the placental morphology. But, you know, even with a normal pregnancy, the risk for bleeding is still high, right? And we can expect up to half a liter to a liter, depending on the route of delivery. But having a patient on blood thinners towards the latter weeks of pregnancy just seems so dicey and scary thinking about what a patient may have just even with a normal pregnancy without any anticoagulation. So, Dr. Burlacher, how do you manage the risks of bleeding versus clotting towards the end of pregnancy when we are starting to plan delivery? Uh, gosh, I, I'm so sorry to hear about your mom's story. That sounds awful. Um, I, I am so glad that we have uh, a couple other advances in medicine at this point in time that allow us to take better care. But my goodness, it sounds um, like a really horrific story for her and for your family members to have gone through. The risk of bleeding at the time of, of delivery is real. And so we do need to be thoughtful about this. Two things. One is careful planning, right? Just like the decision to become pregnant, you know, the, the timing and mode of delivery. It's also careful planning. And my other word of advice is it takes a village, right? So it's never just a cardiologist. You're working with a team of maternal fetal medicine doctors, as well as typically anesthesiologists who are going to be part of the collaborative care team that really makes these decisions with patients as you move to end of pregnancy and really the delivery time. Typically, what we recommend is that at the 36-week mark or even 10 days prior to, to when we think or guess that a patient will deliver, we switch patients over to low molecular weight heparin if they are still on warfarin. And that's really, as you are getting at, from a planned delivery standpoint, we really want to avoid other undue bleeding complications at the time of that. And then when you get even closer, we typically recommend either a C-section or a planned induction. So we don't just let patients go spontaneously into delivery when they have a mechanical valve of any sort, just so that we can have everything be as controlled as possible to limit the complications involved at this really high risk period of the pregnancy, which is the peripartum period. At about the 24-hour point, when you know that you are either going to induce or do a C-section, you want to stop the therapeutic low molecular weight heparin to talk with your anesthesiologist or at least have the, have the plan already with your anesthesiologist with regards to what they will do for anesthesia. Most of the time epidurals, as you know, but, but that needs to be carefully timed with the last dose of therapeutic heparin so that the risk of any sort of complications in the spine as they are doing anesthesia there does not complicate matters for, for the mom as she is going into delivery. Great. Thank you. 
We definitely like a good plan, but sometimes things just don't go according to plan. So what are the contingencies if a patient shows up in labor while fully anticoagulated? Yeah, a lot of times things don't go in pregnancy. And just Natalie, as you know, um, in the cardioobstetric world where we care for a lot of patients, things happen, right? And so you always really need to be ready and on your toes for when things happen and, and have a plan B or C so that you are ready and can optimally care for the patient and the soon-to-be baby as things happen. So the biggest thing first is to remember that the fetus at this point is still fully anticoagulated. And so with that in mind, a vaginal delivery introduces fetal trauma and likely hemorrhage. And so if it really is an urgent thing that you cannot delay or get through and have timing up, you really want to favor the C-sections at that point in time. And the other things to consider is, is reversal, right, of the anticoagulation. This is giving for a three-factor prothrombin complex or FFP, although FFP will not totally reverse. And same with vitamin K. We consider oral and IV vitamin K, but it is not an immediate or complete reversal. So you do need to try a number of things. And I typically work with my obstetric pharmacist as well as my anesthesiologist at that point in time to make sure that we are limiting the bleeding as much as possible. Some have used protamine as well, but typically you're doing whatever is in your pharmacy, which not everybody has access to all of those things. So it's important to know what you do have access with. And if you're planning this with your team, your MFM team and your anesthesiologist, you do, or at least we do, and what I recommend to everybody is have a worst case scenario, right? So this is your worst case scenario. She comes in at 28 weeks, fully anticoagulated and actively in labor. And what are you going to do? And so those are the things that you need to know what your resources are and what the plan is. And, and that's pretty much how we approach it at that point in time. Gosh, that worst case scenario is terrifying. And your explanation makes so much sense because I had just assumed that the preference for a C-section in that context was because maybe they could more easily get hemostasis surgically. But the perspective of the baby being fully anticoagulated and wanting to avoid fetal trauma and intracranial hemorrhage, et cetera, makes so much sense. So say, you know, you, you have the worst case scenario, everyone, you know, the team rallies behind the patient, does the right thing, mom and baby make it out unscathed. How soon can we safely resume anticoagulation after her vaginal or cesarean delivery? This is hard and depends a little bit on how the delivery went and how the mom is doing. So if it was your mom that you talked about, we would not be doing anticoagulation right away. We, right, we have to make sure that there is stabilization and no other complications before we restart anticoagulation. But you know, if everything went well, you can typically restart anticoagulation about four to six hours after delivery. And that's with specifically unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin to start with. That said, you do have to talk to your anesthesiologist because, again, just like the initiation of the epidural that they want to put in for anesthesia, the removal of the epidural also has to be timed with your anesthesiologist. And so you want to just make sure that you don't get in the way of them removing their epidural but typically pretty shortly thereafter. And I say, just to get into the weeds on this for a second, I would not bolus these patients with heparin if you're going to do a heparin. I typically prefer personally unfractionated heparin and IV drip with no bolus and then start it off to get to a higher level that will take anywhere from six to 12 hours. Most likely you knew what their dose was and you can get back there. I hedge a little bit on the low molecular weight heparin just because that 12 to 24 hour period uh, after delivery is still a high risk period for patients to have bleeding complications and within the uterus, even though, you know, the fetus has been born and fully delivered, there are unexpected things that arise hours later that we do not want to put ourselves at a disadvantage if you've already given a dose of low molecular weight heparin. Great. Thank you everyone for such a thorough discussion about my case. We went from 
preconception counseling to each trimester, how to manage anticoagulation during those three trimesters, and then even managing the delivery and post-delivery part, including anticoagulation during breastfeeding. Our patient did great, actually. Both the mother and the baby did very well. During the first trimester, we switched our patient to low molecular weight heparin, given that her dosage was warfarin 7.5 milligrams. As Dr. Bernacher had mentioned, five is the usual cutoff. Then it depends on on a case-to-case basis and discussion with the patient. Our patient was happy switching it to Lovinox for the first trimester. In the second and third trimester, we went back to warfarin and she was planned for induction, which went well. And both the baby and the mother are doing well. I do want to point out a very crucial part, which I learned while taking care of this case, was a very good communication between the cardiologist, which was us, and also the obstetrics team and the maternal fetal medicine team to make sure that the things go as planned. I can't highlight that enough, Akanksha. I think the communication and documentation really is vital in these sorts of things. Because even though even though you and maybe one other person have a great conversation, OB switch services and you are off call. And so the documentation of this is also really important just to make sure that we don't lose parts of the conversation that we had. So thanks for highlighting that. Thanks so much, Akanksha. That was a great case. I'm glad that your patient and her baby did well. Let's shift gears a little bit to another important indication for anticoagulation. Venous thromboembolism is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality in pregnancy and is 10 times more common in pregnancy than in the general population. Wow. You know, I knew pregnancy was a risk factor for clotting with inducing a hypercoagulable state as part of workhouse triad, but 10 times seems very high. Dr. Burlocker, why is pregnancy such a high-risk time for venous thromboembolism? And which patients are you particularly concerned about from a preventive approach? But you've already stated it, right? It's Verkhoff's triad, right? So you've got venous stasis, you've got the endothelial injury that occurs, especially at the time of delivery, and then you have a hypercoagulable state, which is pregnancy, largely driven by the hormones. And so this is something to really be aware of. And honestly, the one thing that I want to highlight here specifically is that that risk of VTE or any sort of clotting is the greatest in the postpartum period. So up to about six weeks postpartum is much greater to have a clot than even in the first trimester, even though it's higher risk in the first trimester than a non-pregnant state. But we really, really want to make sure that, you know, just after the delivery, you're not like, phew, got through that one. Don't do that. (laughs) Stay vigilant and stay worried, right? And what, what you were talking about, you know, those risks for patients, the higher risk patients for those patients that have had a, a thromboembolism in the past or just a thrombus in the past, we think of those who are multiple births history of varicose veins, diabetes, BMI greater than 30, and an age greater than 35. There's some other smaller risks that I'm not quite as convinced about, but those, if you have any patients that have any of those things, you do want to be, you know, very vigilant about making sure that you have a plan for anticoagulation as they become pregnant, they are pregnant, and they deliver into the postpartum state. Thank you. That's such a great point about uh, vigilance in the postpartum period. What is your approach to anticoagulation with venous thromboembolism during pregnancy, labor, and postpartum? Can we just use everything we learned about anticoagulation for mechanical valves, or is it different? Good question. You would think that it would just be that easy, right? (laughs) We always wish that it's just the same, but it's actually not exactly the same. You really shouldn't be using warfarin during pregnancy. The only reason we make that exception is because the risk of thrombosis for those patients with mechanical valves is so high. And so at this point, this is really where you just want to shift over to the low molecular weight heparin and make sure that you have that plan. Uh, again, the unfractionated heparin is also used with very close monitoring. 
But that seems to be a little bit more difficult from a feasibility standpoint. Most choose the low molecular weight heparin route for those with increased risk or a history of venous thromboembolism. And just to go back to that postpartum period you were talking about, how long postpartum do you maintain them on anticoagulation? It depends a little bit. If they are on regular anticoagulation at baseline, then, you know, it's you just go back to that. And that's what they maintain that throughout. You typically, I take them out to the six to eight week period. That a little bit depends on any sort of complications that they've had in the peri and postpartum period. But again, like we said, that the biggest, highest risk for thromboembolism is the up to the six weeks postpartum. So you definitely want to take them out through that. And sometimes even another week or two longer, depending on the state of that person's clinical course. Great. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation about how to safely get our patients through pregnancy, labor, and delivery while on anticoagulation. But what about afterwards? We touched on this a little bit briefly, but I know we certainly encourage breastfeeding due to benefits to both mom and baby. But how do we get the baby safely through breastfeeding while the mom is on anticoagulation? Are these medications safe? I know that this patient and some patients that we've seen before in clinic have been particularly concerned about this. Yeah, good question. And we always need to answer these these concerns for our patients. Again, the low molecular weight heparin and, and unfractionated heparin and warfarin all safe for breastfeeding. And you do still, unfortunately, at this point, want to avoid the DOAX, even though they are easier, they are not safe for breastfeeding. So you kind of still have to stay away from them until you get to the point where mom is no longer breastfeeding. Perfect. So now let's fast forward three years. Our patient and her beautiful family of three are thriving. Her baby is now a rambunctious toddler whose greatest wish is to become a big sis. If our patient were to have a subsequent pregnancy, how would you approach counseling and management this time around? Any differences from her last one? There probably will be, although maybe not. So it all depends on how things have gone, right? How it sounds like the end of that pregnancy went well. We didn't have any complications at delivery or shortly thereafter. But we need to make sure that in those past three years, nothing else has changed. You want to look at the gradients of that valve still. You want to look at the function of the of the left ventricle. You want to look at those pressures. You want to see, make sure maybe she's developed atrial fibrillation. Has she had any other thromboembolic disorders or events that you want to make sure of? And, and noting the age of the patient at that point in time, as we all get older, unfortunately, there's an increase in complications. And so you kind of go around the circle again of having all of those conversations about shared decision-making and what the risks are. And she may have higher risk at this point in time. It would be unusual for her to have lower risk later on in life, given her history. And so those are just things to kind of continue to consider. But again, provided there's nothing else that I, I don't know about this patient, it, it would not be contraindicated. It's just something that you need to be very careful and thoughtful about. Great. Thank you so much for this entire discussion. It's been really wonderful. We have learned a lot both about the guidelines and how we should manage these patients, but also just some practical tips about how we can approach patients that sometimes some cardiologists feel a little bit out of their comfort zone with. But to change it up a little bit and to finish us out, we wanted to ask, what makes your heart flutter about cardioobstetrics? Gosh, I love the play on words there, Natalie. That's so great. You know, what I love about cardioobstetrics is that we really can help women in a time that is really important in their life, right? This is one of the the most memorable times of their life is when they have a child. And so you want to make sure that it is as safe as it possibly can be. I always say knowledge is power, and that goes for not only physicians and providers, but also patients. And so 
having that ongoing clear communication, giving them that information that you know about the anticoagulation that we talked about and the risks associated with it really gets us in a better place, gets them in a better place, and hopefully decreases maternal death and complications as we move forward. As We all know that this is something that we are striving to do in America today as our numbers are not as good as they should be. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Burlacher, for your time, for your expertise. And thanks to Akansha, who helped us so much with planning this discussion and for bringing such a great case presentation. This is certainly a very high-yield discussion. I know we'll be taking home a lot of these practical tips to our day-to-day practice, and I'll probably be referring back to it again in the future. So thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how underemphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilize what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. 
the vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life. And presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to Cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series. 